The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Open with me to Exodus. Exodus chapter 17. We'll jump right back in uh, to the series that we're in the middle of. We took three weeks to, uh, to reboot, and, uh, and now we come back to Exodus, uh, and we're going to continue to work just, just verse by verse through this book together. Uh, I appreciate what Austin said there in that prayer, and the, Lyrics of what we just sang uh, go so hand in hand with this text, more so than what is obvious at first. When we sang that line, in my place condemned you stood, uh, I'm praying that throughout the course of this sermon, uh, about midway through, that's going to become vividly clear, even here in Exodus. And, uh, and what Austin prayed there uh, is my prayer for us today, that we would never grow tired of hearing the gospel, of celebrating the gospel, of savoring, seeing and savoring what God has done on our behalf. He didn't, he didn't have to come save us. He came and saved us because while we were still sinners, he came and died for us. And that's what I want us to see today. So Exodus chapter 17 is where we'll read in just a minute. But um, a couple of years ago, there was a movie that came out and uh, some of you probably saw that movie called God's Not Dead. God's Not Dead is, is a, a moving where Kevin Sorbo uh, played an atheist college philosophy professor who declared to his class, largely of incoming freshmen, freshman philosophy, that God is dead. And uh, there was one particular freshman student in the class who was a believer. He was a devout Christian, and his faith wasn't just something that was nominal in his life. It wasn't his family's faith or, or, uh, or just something that he had seen in his parents. It was his faith. And so when he sat in that class and, and he heard this professor proclaim, God is dead, the Spirit caused this no to well up in him. And when he stood on his faith and stood up to this professor, the professor then said, okay, if this is where you must stand, then prove it or fail my class. And the whole movie is really about him setting out this college freshman to, to prove that God is not dead. And it's a moving story of really God being placed on trial by an atheistic, godless culture. And we love to celebrate things like that. We would get behind that movie and say amen to this, this freshman. And we can triumphantly celebrate uh, the, the, the message in this movie. But I would point to you another question. Are we being hypocritical? Do we not also at times put God on trial? When life doesn't go our way, do we accept and receive that, whatever it may be, as a good and gracious, loving gift from a sovereign Father who loves us and wants what's best for us, even though we can't see the details, we say this is a good gift from Him. Do we receive that in that way, or do we become like what we're going to see in the Israelites today more often than not? Grumblers and complainers and those who quarrel with God. Do we not put God on trial and say to him things like, God, why have you done this? Prove yourself to me. Answer my questions. 
And we place God on a defendant's chair and expect him to answer to us. Things happen in this life. I shared with you last week at the close of the message how at Christmas at home, uh, my grandfather didn't know who I was and has been probably the most influential person on my life in shaping me toward following Christ and for him to stand in the living room and not know who I was and, and say, it's good to meet you. I look at this and I say, here's a man who all of his life, I've never known a time in his life when he wasn't in love with Jesus. I've never known a time in his life where he wasn't in prayer or in the word and trusting the Lord and following him. I'm sure he, he's, not, he's not sinless. I know he's a sinner. But as far as how I've seen him, there's always been a Bible that was open in his house. And not just open, but tethered and marked up. And, and every time you would talk to him, he just, just sort of oozed faith. And here he is at the closing years of his life, and dementia begins to set in, and he doesn't know his own grandchildren. And he stumbles around his hometown, and he doesn't need to be driving anymore. And he, he is this, in some ways, larger-than-life figure in my hometown that is beginning to be seen as this old man who is not quite there anymore. We were tempted to look at things like that and say, God, why? God, how could you let this happen to a man like this? And we put God on trial. We, we take this position when we say things like, God, why am I still alone or why am I still stuck in this job or why this or why that? We take this position and we may not actually be saying God is dead, but what we are saying is, God, I don't think you're really fit to lead my life. God, let me tell you what I would I would never choose this, God, so you've got to prove yourself to me. In today's passage, the Israelites are going to put God on trial. And I want more than anything for us to see the response that God has. Let's look at Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. 
And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Would you pray with me? God, we need desperately for you to be our teacher today. We don't need to hear the opinions or the musings of any mere mortal man. God, we need your word. We need it more than we need air in our lungs. So God, speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This question is the first point. Is God unfit to lead? If we're putting God on trial, is God unfit to lead? Uh, Let's just walk through this passage here. In verse 1, the Israelites have become a nation of nomads. Uh, they, They begin to move out, but notice they're organized almost like this This military regiment. They go out by stages, the Bible says. Yet God continues to call them not an army or a battalion or any of those things. He calls them the congregation. And so it gives us this clue that that while they will be called upon to fight and they will be made into an army, God is not so much putting together an army as he is this family, this people for his own glory. God calls them this congregation, but if we stick to this military language here, we look and we see that the Lord is their commander. He's their general, if you will. The the text here in verse 1 says that they moved according to the commandment of the Lord, and so they're following this this general who is God. But according to verse 1, either this general is not very good or He's doing something intentionally that they have no idea that he's doing. We see this when when God is leading them. They're moving at God's direction, but God leads them to camp at Rephidim where there is no water for them to drink. So he's either not a good leader. I mean, what leader leads a people to a place where they don't have the resources to survive, or he's better than they think, and he's doing something intentionally? In verse 2, if the Lord is their general, then Moses is their lieutenant. Moses is leading under the direction of God. And because the people here are camped at Rephidim and there is no water, they quarrel with Moses. And they said, give us water to drink. Now, I've never served in the armed forces. Uh, I regret that in, 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 in some ways, and, and I wish I would have served, but I, I can't say that I have, and many of you have. But I pretty much know this from talking with some of you all and watching movies and things like that, that you don't speak to your commanding officer this way. You don't quarrel with the guy above you. They have drill sergeants for a reason, Right? You don't quarrel with them. This is a pretty big no-no. But here the Israelites are looking at the one who has been placed as superior, superior over them and saying, what kind of leader are you? Why have you brought us out here to die? You brought us out here to kill us? Give us water to drink. And they began to grumble and complain and quarrel with Moses. And the people display this disrespect for authority. At, at, at the very least, it's disrespect. If not, all the way in subordination. They display this by, number one, quarreling, which is actually a step up from grumbling. Up to this point, they've grumbled. And you can, you can understand the, the escalation in this. You can grumble 
behind someone's back. You can grumble without coming before them, and you can just murmur and grumble. But to quarrel is to look at the person and to argue with them. So this is a step up, and they display this. There's this escalation in their disrespect. And then they also display this disrespect by demanding, give us this water. They demand. They, they forget that they are subordinate to him. And while their disrespect feels personal to Moses, they're really quarreling with God. This is, this is important for anybody who's in any leadership at all. Particularly, I, I know this in the realm of which God has called me in the realm of being a pastor. Sometimes people have an issue with God, but they can't see God. They can't reach out and touch God. And so the person that they can take it out on is the one that they can see and reach out and touch. And the pastor becomes the, the brunt. He takes the quarreling. And one of the things that is helpful for any young pastor or any seasoned pastor or anyone serving the Lord in any capacity is to remember that when people grumble and complain and quarrel, their real issue is not with you but with God. Now, there are times when, when pastors do things that are sinful, and I get that. And then, yes, the issue should be with us. But so many times there are pastors who are serving in so many difficult places that are laboring under such division and quarrelsome spirit that it ruins them. We have pastors leaving the ministry every week. We have pastors committing suicide because they're under the weight of this. So this disrespect feels personal to Moses, but Moses reminds them their quarreling is not with him so much as with God. They're putting God on trial. They're demanding that God prove himself. He said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put God to the test, is what Moses said to them. Moses reminds them that an argument against him is really an argument against the Lord. It wasn't like Moses was the one who placed the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire in the sky. They had been led all this way, not by some just mystical, ethereal whim of Moses. They've been looking up and seeing this concrete GPS in the sky. And God himself has been, has been leading them. And when Moses here says, why do you test the Lord? The word test is a word, it's, uh, in, in the original language, means to prove. It could also be used in the testing of metals to determine what their ingredients are and, and what the quality of those ingredients are in this metal. In other words, what the Israelites are saying here is, God, through Moses, God, we're not really sure you're fit to lead us anymore. We're not really sure what you're made of, God. We're not sure that we can really bank on you anymore, God. And they had no reason to doubt God. God had done everything. Even, even before, if you just go this side of the Red Sea, God had done so much for them. God had caused bread to rain and not stop raining from heaven. God had covered the camp with quail. I mean, God had done so much to, to lead them, and, and they have no reason to doubt, but that is exactly what they're doing. They're putting God on trial, saying, God, prove yourself to us. In, in verse 3, the people ignore Moses' warning. They don't hear him at all that, hey, your issue's really with God. They ignore that in verse 3, and they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our families and our livestock? 
They moved on from questioning God's ability to lead, and now they've begun to question his motives. They really are accusing God of homicide. They're calling 911 on God. They're they're saying, God, we don't trust you, and we believe you have evil in your heart toward us. In verse 4, they not only put God on trial, but they've apparently convicted him, and they're ready to carry out the sentence. When Moses goes and he, he prays to God, he cries out to God, he says, what am I supposed to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. So in their minds, they've already determined that God is unfit to lead, and therefore, since we can't stone God, we will stone his leader. This was common in this culture. When when someone had been legally convicted, the community came together and stoned them to death. Notice that Moses has gone, though, here in verse 4, from the prosecuted to the prosecutor. He becomes complicit with them in their putting God on trial. There's, yes, you say, well, all he's doing is is praying to God. He's in this hard situation, and he cries out to God, God, what am I supposed to do? But there's something in this that goes beyond him just humbly turning to God for help, and it crosses a line in his tone and his attitude. I'm not the first person that has said this. People like John Calvin and and others have, have pointed this out. That he is, he is here crossing this line and going from the prosecuted to the prosecutor, and he puts God on trial. God, if, if you wouldn't have led them here, then they wouldn't be angry with me. Prove yourself to me. And Moses looks at his situation and lashes out at God. Now, I want you to know, God can handle our questions God's not afraid of our questions. God, in fact, encourages us. The Bible encourages us to bring honestly our questions to him. But we should do so with a humble attitude. Not one that comes and demands that God prove himself and answer to us, but one that says, God, I don't understand this. And God, honestly, I don't like this, but God, I know you're God. And you see the end from the beginning. And there's nothing beyond your control. And God, you love me. And God, you, you, you have only good in store for me. So whether it hurts right now or it feels wonderful right now, God, I trust you even though I don't understand. That's different than coming and demanding and putting God on trial. So the first question is, is God fit to lead? Well, then if we're in this courtroom where God is on trial, we turn to the defendant. We turn to God, and the second point is, God, how do you plead? Well, in verses 5 and 6, he does so in a rather interesting way, by submitting to their trial. Do we understand, do we forget that God is God? And that by very definition of God, he answers to no one. He owes no one an explanation Yet here we see him all the way back in Exodus submitting to their charges, submitting to their interrogation. He submits to their trial. In verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. In the Israelite culture, the elders were 
those who sat at the gate and heard the arguments and passed judgment. And so what God is doing here, when he says to Moses, okay, Moses, go ahead and go before the people. Go ahead and step out there and lead and take with you the, the elders. What God is, do is doing is he's assembling a jury. You see this? God is calling together the jury and he's submitting himself to their trial. He places himself in the defendant's chair. In verse 5, he says, take with you the staff, the same staff that you struck the Nile with. Take that staff. And if we've learned anything as we've gone through Exodus, we've learned that the reason God sent the staff with Moses was so that the people would see the staff and understand that it was not Moses who was their deliverer, but God himself was with Moses and God was delivering them. And so when God here says, take the staff, God is saying, assemble the jury and take me and put me there in front of them. Not only that, but in verse 6, he makes it abundantly clear when he says, I will stand before you there. Almost every time in ancient literature, almost every time when this phrase, stand before someone is used, it's used in this sense of standing before a superior, either waiting for a sentence or waiting for Uh, a command. And here, God, the God of the universe says, okay, take me, put me in front of the jury, and I will stand before you there. And he submits himself, the creator of the universe and the final judge of all, doesn't respond to their accusations by, by sending fire and brimstone and just destroying them all. Instead, he condescends to their charges And he puts himself on trial. He takes the conviction and the sentence in their place. So he submits to their trial. He places himself on the defendant's chair. And then while there, he takes the sentence of conviction and sees it through. It's here in the text in verse 6. It says, I will stand before you there on the rock. I will stand before you there on the rock, and you shall strike the rock. In some translations, the NIV and others say, by the rock. But this is a weak and misleading translation. I don't want to say anything about what you're carrying in your hands, but this is one instance where that's not a good translation. It it strips away what's meant here. And And I know that because the New Testament shines light on this. This is important here that he says, I will stand before you on the rock and you will strike the rock. Because Paul had this understanding in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and following, when he said, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized in Moses, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. God here is not saying, I will come and stand beside the rock. He is saying, I will place myself on the rock. I will become the rock. The New Testament here, this is one place where the New Testament sheds much needed light on this Old Testament passage. If not, if we don't look there and let the Bible interpret the Bible, we will miss 
the gospel here. We will miss that all the way back when he's leading this people who are not even a people, who have no, who have no home, who have no one to run back to in this early developmental stage. We'd miss that even there he's got the gospel in mind. This is a picture here when God says, take the staff and I'll stand before you there on the rock and you will strike the rock. This is a picture of what one day would take place. God himself would be placed on trial by the world. And he would humble himself and submit himself to it. You think about the, just the ludicrousy of that, that God submits himself to it, but that's what he did. That Jesus would go and he would stand before them. You, you think about Jesus being arrested in the garden. And they, they came and they looked for him and, and they asked for him and he, and he spoke and they all fell down. A display of his power even in that moment. His disciple pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus and Jesus said, put away your sword. And he picks up the ear and he places it back on Malchus' head and heals that ear immediately yet then submits himself to being taken and arrested and beaten and spit upon and mocked and finally nailed to a cross, Jesus would go and he would stand before them, not on a rock, but on a cross, on the cross. And he would take the sentence that was meant for all of humanity and he would there be struck by the full weight of the the rod of God's wrath. You say, some people struggle with this and they say, who was the one who wielded the power that day? Why why did Jesus have to answer? Who was he answering to? He was not answering to Satan because Satan wasn't the one who had been offended. Your sin and my sin and the sin of the world offends a holy God. And God himself becomes in this moment both the convictor and the convicted He submits himself so that we might be free. He takes that place. He takes the sentence meant for all of humanity so that any that trust in him and and, and believe that he is their only hope of ever being saved and forgiven and made right with God, they will never stand trial ever again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In ourselves, we should stand trial. In our own doings, we should, at the end of time, stand before this judge. We should, if we get what we deserve, every last one of us, no matter how good your mama says you are, deserve hell. But God, when the world placed him on trial, submitted himself to that trial, went and stood on the cross and took the full weight of God's wrath so that we might be free. This is the good news. This is the best news. This is the only news that will ever fix a world that is obviously broken all around us. There is a world around us and even even within us that looks and says, this isn't right. And instead of saying, God, thank you that you have done everything to 
bring me to you. And one day you will come again and you will make things right. Instead, we shake our fists at the sky and we say, God, why have you done this? God, why have you made me this way? And we put God on trial and we say, God, answer yourself. And God submits himself to that trial. And he also then awards them with life-giving water. He doesn't just go and stand on the rock and take the, the, the striking of the rod. But then the Bible here in verse 6 in our passage says that water shall come out of it and the people will drink. The people deserve no water. But water they got. This is what Jesus was referring to in John chapter 7 when he said, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, we have not simply been given forgiveness of our sins We've been given the gift that the Holy Spirit now lives within us and lives to lead us into truth and lives to convict us of of sin and, and lives to give us power over sin and death so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So the final question I would ask you today, I would ask of this text today, is what is the final verdict? What's the final verdict on whether God is fit to lead? I started out by saying that either God was not very good at, as a leader or that God was doing something intentionally that they didn't know he was doing. The truth is that they were the ones on trial. God had already rescued them from Egypt. They didn't need to be saved again. He had done so in such a dramatic and powerful way. I mean, you think about all the miracles that he had performed to lead this people out of Egyptian bondage. But then for some reason, God takes them into the wilderness. Are we to believe, are we to assume that this God who displayed such power and such wisdom and just befuddled the most powerful ruler of the world at that time, are we to believe that all of a sudden he just lost his ability to lead? That he leads them out of Egypt, then he goes, I don't know what to do next. Is that what we're supposed to think? If we learn anything about the wilderness from the scriptures and really even from what we're learning here, if we learn anything at all, we learn that the wilderness is the place where God prepares his people. I mean, Moses himself spent 40 years there getting ready to lead the people out of Egypt. Jesus went to the wilderness for 40 days and he fasted and he prepared himself for his public ministry. They were, they were now in God's classroom just as Moses had been they were now there in God's classroom and God would be their instructor and he, wasn't, he didn't have them on trial in such a way that he was saying, okay, now prove yourself and if you pass muster, then I'll let you in. That's not what he's doing. Instead, he's taking them and he's teaching them and he's preparing them. They were unaware of God's agenda and so often so are we. 
here's something I want you to remember. If you don't remember anything else today, remember this. God tests his people to change his people. God tests his people to change his people. While we've been saved, we don't yet trust God the way we should. Oh, for grace to trust him more, right? Who couldn't, who couldn't affirm that when we sang that together? Oh, for grace to trust him more because how often do I fail? But you know how many times God has responded to me and my lack of trust in him with fire and brimstone? Zero. Over and over and over again, he has responded to me and to you by graciously providing water from the rock. I have stood in the wilderness of my life and said, God, why? I don't understand. God, why? And God has said, drink from the rock. Drink from the rock. Let me show myself to you over and over and over again so that when you pass through this wilderness, which is your life, there will come a day when you will come to the end of your life and you will find that you have been in the wilderness transformed to the image of Christ. In the post-rescue wilderness, God takes the role of a patient father who takes seriously his role. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31 says, In the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Child of God, if you're here today as a believer, as one who's trusting in Christ, understand that while there will be some things in this life that don't make sense to you and you will not understand, it's okay to bring your questions before him, but, but know that he is in this life, in these moments, carrying us like a father so that he might conform us to the image of Christ. This, this, this event was such a pivotal event in the shaping of Israel's trust that verse 7 says it received a name. That this place itself receives a name. It's called Masa and Meribah because of the people's quarreling and, 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 and their testing of the Lord. If, if we take that and we say, well, that's just a throwaway verse. We don't learn anything there. But if we take that and we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10... We're reminded that Paul wrote in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. One of the reasons why I believe we question God as often as we do is because we're not making decisions based on his word or faith. We're making decisions for our life based on our stomachs. We may make decisions for our life based on our appetites. And so that's why so many of us are so superficial in the way that we live our lives. We care about the wrong things so many times. We get upset over the things that really don't matter They sat down to drink and eat, and they rose up to play. 
Verse 8, Paul wrote, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Church, we come to the book of Exodus and we think we're simply at times just reading about a people in history somewhere and how they were such miserable followers of God. But the reality is God has preserved it there for us. Let us learn from their mistakes that in the wilderness... God is testing us and shaping us and conforming us so that we might trust him more. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word, the simple clarity of your word. God, the profound mystery of the gospel. Lord, that is is present on every page that was not some plan B somewhere along the way, but God, it was your plan from the foundations of the world to redeem a people to your own glory. God, I thank you that you displayed that in the pages of Exodus. God, I thank you that you showed it so many other times, and God, that there was a real time, a real point in history where it became less about pointing to something, and it was the event. God, I thank you that you submitted yourself and went to a cross and stood there before those you had no need to answer to. But God, you took the sentence on our behalf. God, I thank you for that. On my behalf, Lord, I don't know. I don't know why. God, I fail you so many times. Over and over and over again, I fail you. But God, you're so faithful to never respond with this fire and brimstone in my life. But God, you continue to just carry me as this father. And Lord, you just say over and over again, drink from the rock. Drink from the rock. Come back to the gospel. God, I pray that in my life and in the lives of these who are seated in this place, God, that we might learn to trust you in the wilderness. Lord, teach us, God, oh, for grace to trust you more. For your glory and your great name, amen. I'm going to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond. And Maybe you're here today and you've never taken a drink from that rock. You've never seen yourself that you are the one who deserves to be standing there waiting to feel the wrath of God. And maybe today you saw that while it should be you there, that God himself humbled himself and put put himself in your place. And he took it. He took your punishment, your penalty for you. The Bible says that today, if you believe If you will believe with your heart, 
you'll confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. See, God's not just some grandfather in the sky. I was listening to a country music song yesterday. It's an old song that says, Daddies don't just love their kids every now and then. It's a love without end every man, right? But the reality is we think God is like that, that we don't, it doesn't matter if we receive him or not, that in the end he'll receive us. The reality is the Bible says there's no way to come to know God, to have sins forgiven, and to live with him forever except by faith. And so if you're here today and you've never, by faith, received the gift of him standing in your place, then I'll be down here at the front. I'd love for you to come talk to me. I'd love to just pray with you and help you to see how you respond from here. Maybe you're here as a believer and you know you're, you're firm in that. And maybe you just need to right now thank God for all the times he's carried you and said, drink from the rock. Maybe... You're here and you need to say, God, I have not trusted you the way I should. I've been the one standing and demanding. God, you owe me no explanation. God, give me the grace to trust you in this situation right now. Whatever the case may be, if you need to pray, I'll be here. There are people in a prayer room out those doors that'd love to pray with you. However God moves, let's respond in faith to him. Let's worship this time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.